Book Supplied Podcast, presented by WSL Leadership. In this podcast, we talk about an awesome book and how to apply it to your work, sport, or life. I'm your host, Iggy Perillo. Thanks for joining me. On this episode of the Book Supplied Podcast, we'll be talking about the book Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative? by Mark Fisher. And I am joined today, very excited to be joined today, in fact, by special guest Tara McMullen, the intellectual, the author, the amazing human being whose newsletter I love. Uh, Tara, can you introduce yourself to these folks and we'll dive into this cool book? Absolutely. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. As you said, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a producer. Um, Most of my work hinges around kind of defamiliarizing ourselves with work and economics and this landscape that we live in, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Um, And when I'm not doing that, I am producing podcasts uh, with my husband in our boutique podcast production agency called Yellow House Media. Fantastic. I love it. I'm so excited. So I came across this book, Capitalist Realism, through reading The Dawn of Everything. Like they reference it there. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came across this. And then I saw you mentioning this book specifically in your newsletter. I'm like, oh my gosh, here's someone else who has read this book, which is literally tiny, like 80 pages and very dense and amazing. I'm wondering how you first encountered this book or where how this entered your your mind, your world. Yeah. Well, first off, I stand David Graeber. Oh my God. So great. Um, but also, uh, so I found capitalist realism through my friend, uh, Kate Strathman, who runs, um, a bookkeeping firm called Wanderwell Consulting. And she is sort of like my mentor in radical thinking and radical business. She's my, she's my radical friend. Um, and, uh, so she mentioned it in an interview I did with her um, a couple of years ago, and I picked it up and started reading. And I was just like, this is amazing in terms of theory, but it's also amazing in just terms of how it's written and the the references that Mark Fisher makes. And it's just, that's how I found it. And I just fell in love with it immediately. Yes. Uh, speaking of his references, it opens with he ha- uses a lot of movie references and I love mm-hmm. movies and I love watching movies. So uh, he opens it up with mentioning Children of Men, this movie from the, I think, early 2000s. I don't remember exactly mm-hmm. 2006, I guess. And uh, sort of I think there's this whole genre of like the dystopian future. Everything's terrible kind of world. And I had not seen Children of Men. I'm like, OK, pause. I need to go watch this. My I'd been recommended to me before. And then I watched it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this movie is dark and sad. And he's like, cool, there's that, you know, this plot that's happening. But the reality is like describing the world that he lives in is this like extension of capitalism to the extreme, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that was just like a really fascinating way to enter into the world very visually of what he means by capitalist realism. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, he just makes a lot of great movie references. But yeah, carry on. (laughs) No, he does. He does. Have you read the Children of Men book? I have not. I have not. Oh, highly recommend. Okay. Okay. Um, It's it's a little bit different from the movie, but they're both excellent in their own in their own right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that the Children of Men reference is really sort of emblematic of the whole argument that he's making throughout the book, which is that capitalism becomes this thing that is so deeply entrenched, so 
uh, internalized that we stop noticing all of the absurdity that we allow to happen because of the capital system. Um, And so, you know, with children of men, it's like, oh, well, you know, society is literally grinding to a halt because there are no more children. Um, But those same sorts of themes we can see today, just in our current political moment and our current economic moment, um, the things that we allow to happen uh, and don't think a single thing of um, are really absurd sometimes, often. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorite lines from the book is that control only works when we're complicit with it. That was like mm-hmm. one of my most favorite lines. And because there's this huge dichotomy throughout the book between control, like are we being controlled or are we controlling ourselves? Sort of like there's this other idea around being surveil- surveilled, surveillance, and then internal sort of surveillance. Like we internalize this sense of control and surveillance in our lives. And it's, it's fine. It's just how we do it. That's what's, you know, we accept this all things, all these things as part of capitalist realism. And the reality of this world that we can't escape. We don't understand a way out of, or we don't understand another alternative, I guess, is really how he phrases it. Yeah. So he's drawing on Foucault and Deleuze when he talks about surveillance and control. And so um, uh, Foucault talked about um, the... he talked about the the surveillance society, um, specifically in reference to like the idea of the panopticon, which was a circular. The idea was it's a circular prison with uh, cells all around the outer circle facing inward, and then a guard tower in the middle. And the idea was that everyone could be watched all the time, but the inmates wouldn't actually even know if there was anyone in the guard tower. Um, and so through the the image of the panopticon, we can sort of start to uh, notice how the out the external surveillance starts to become internal surveillance. And so from there, then Deleuze uh, kind of turn more the surveillance society into the control society. And that that's the move that he makes where, instead of being externally surveilled or externally controlled, we are now internally controlled. Um, and as I was reviewing the book again for for this conversation, uh, when he was talking about sort of the pervasive atmosphere is the phrase he uses of capitalist realism, I was starting to think about another book that was written a few years later than Fisher's book, um, which is called Psychopolitics by the philosopher Byung-Chul Han. And that one is all about that sort of internalization of the managerial uh, surveillance control, like how do I make myself the best worker that I can be in this system uh, kind of situation. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think for anyone who has kind of agonized over whether they're productive enough or efficient enough or whether they've done enough or achieved the right things, like that's that is the narrative of capitalist realism, that pervasive atmosphere, the control society component of it. Absolutely. Like we are so like a part of the system and we can't disentangle from it in a way that it is internalized. And so we are living this reality that we see externally and we don't necessarily like externally, but we've still pulled it into ourselves. Like we, he really talks about how you can say like, oh, I don't like it. And as long as you have sort of this like 
veneer of denialability of not liking it, then you, then you just go on and do whatever you want because you've already said you didn't like it. And so check, done. Now you're just cruising along in this capitalist realist world anyway but you don't worry you said you didn't like it so it's all, it's all fine now like that's like the only i mean he talks a lot about protest but that's like sort of the low level protest that we accept to be you know good enough right it's good enough if you said you yeah. don't like it keep going yeah well in addition to like saying oh i don't like it there are products that we can buy that prove that we don't like it, right? right. Which, so he refers to that as uh, interpassivity, which is a term of, I'm totally forgetting the dude's name, but whatever, interpassivity. So it's this idea that um, the things that we buy uh, can perform actions for us, art that performs actions for us rather than us performing those apps. Uh, those actions. Um, so, you know, he cites Wally as an example of this, the film Wally. He cites like the Live Aid concerts, you know, Bono's red products, which were big at the time that he was writing. But now we might think about like all of the direct to consumer brands that are focused on being super mission driven. Those are still capitalist enterprises that feed us over and over again buy stuff, buy stuff, buy stuff. If you buy this, then you're supporting the national parks. You're supporting uh, the fight against climate change. You're supporting da-da-da-da-da. And all of that consumption is really just reproducing the status quo. And again, that was kind of one of my takeaways um, as I was reviewing the book is just how much of the capitalist realist um sort of framework that he builds is around our identities as consumers first. Um, and at one point he he talks about how the public has been transformed into consumers. Um, and I think it's that that point of view of being the consumer that makes it so difficult to imagine an alternative. Yeah, that's our role is propagating yet being a part of this whole system. Yeah. Well, it's basically one of his lines is that like the, the fantasy being that Western consumerism far from being intrinsically implicated in a system of global inequalities could itself solve them. All we have to do is buy the right products. Like here we are <laughs> problem solved Buy the right things. And he does talk right before that about live eight, which was a protest against poverty. And he's like, well, who, uh, duh. Yeah. Who is for poverty? This is like ridiculous. He kind of pulls out a lot of these sort of examines these things that we do and magnifies them to the point of how ridiculous they really are, which it really is just uncovers the ridiculousness that's underlying so many of these. Yeah. Live aid, just buy the right product, this thing, that thing. Say you don't like it. Carry on, you know, a little bit. Buy your way out of it a little bit. And like, Ugh, yeah. How do you see this playing out in terms of what you do i guess right so we're basically we're mm -hmm. painted into this corner like we're in the system we can't imagine a different system we can't like just buy the right things we can't just say we don't like it so, so what then i guess really is kind of the tiny little question right <laughs> yeah yeah um i mean i think that fisher's argument is really built around um and, and you see this replicated through all sorts of of critical theory and cultural theory but the idea that capital the capitalist system uh, keeps us from uh, acting toward meaningful political involvement, um, and 
you know, I've written before about how busyness, so like that worker bee internalized managerial kind of mindset, um, busyness has a function in, in the economy. And one of the functions of busyness is to keep us uninvolved in politics. Poverty is such a great example of this because there are countless studies of how to reduce or eliminate poverty. We actually know how to political will that's missing. It's not money. It's not uh, It's not like big unanswerable questions. We know exactly how to do it and we don't. Um, and we don't because we would rather spend our money on concert tickets or buying products instead of engaging in the political system and the political changes that would need to happen. Um, so, but in terms of like the everyday, for me, you know, one of the things that I, uh, one of the things that I do to be conscious of this in, in the everyday is thinking about what I am feeling compelled to buy. Just super simple. Like if, if a big piece of this is our identity as consumers, then well, I can start with my consumer identity as a way to, if not push back, um, cause I don't know how much individual power I have, but as a way of like, at least being conscious of the systems that I exist in, you know, when I'm wanting to buy a new pair of jeans or I want a new piece of jewelry or I want this, or I want that, I have to ask myself, why, why do I want that? It's okay to want the thing. Like that's fine. But who suggested or what suggested? that I wanted that thing? Was it, is it an ad that's been following me all around social media? Um, is it that that brand got really good at appealing to quote people like me, right? Am I wanting to buy this thing because of what it says about me? Um, am I wanting to buy it because I'm tired and, you know, burnt out and want something that's going to help me feel a little bit better. That's a really useful piece of information too. So anytime I'm I'm thinking about spending money at this point, I'm really trying to locate where that desire to consume comes from. And that doesn't always change my buying decisions, although it does. Um, but that makes the system visible. And part of what is going on with capitalist realism, with just sort of th this whole like milieu of systems that we find ourselves in is that we don't see them. You know, uh, Fisher talks about it as being naturalized. So we've come to believe that this is just the way things are. This is just how things work. This is how it always was and how it always will be. You know, he talks about how capitalism subsumes both history and the future. Um, and so if I can make those systems visible to myself, then I then in that very small, personal yet political way, I'm able to I'm able to question, my, you know, I'm able to question that system for myself and I can't always escape it. I uh, Most of the time I can't escape it. Right. Because I got to pay the bills and I got to do this and I got to do that. But at least I can see it. And I truly think that seeing it is like the first step. Absolutely. Absolutely. He talks about uh, one of Margaret Thatcher's um, slogans, there is no alternative, right? Yep. And that which like kind of encapsulates this whole process, like the idea that there is no alternative, but to even look at a very personal level, like, wait, I actually 
I there is an alternative here. I have a different choice I can make. I am an agent with some, you know, locus of control yeah. in this system, right? Versus the there is no alternative. And like it becomes an acronym later, like the, you know, T-I-N-A. I'm like, oh, that's what that means. <laughs> there is no alternative. And to tell people that there is no alternative is one thing, but to live in a system where where you can't get your brain around imagining another alternative, it is an act of resistance to then think that there are alternatives. Like that little piece, I think what you were just saying is how to maybe not necessarily like protest or demonstrate, but like to subvert the system in very personal ways on a very like minuscule, granular day-to-day level. I see this thing, you know, we're bombarded by ads constantly if we're online or literally out in the world. Every other bumper sticker is a, you know, (laughs) like a marketing for something or someone. And to think that I have, I could make other choices. I have, there are alternatives out there. Maybe it's like the, I think you're right. Like first step is to be aware, but also Mm -hmm. a pretty radical first step within this entire concept of there is no alternative. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up Thatcher because, you know, the, it, it's really easy again, you know, with this idea that capitalism subsumes history, it's really easy to believe that things have always just been this way, but you know, I don't know how old you are. I'm 40. Um, I can remember growing up when things actually weren't that way, right? Things weren't this way in the early and mid nineties. It was still capitalism. It was still neoliberalism, but it had not taken hold in the way that it has today. And the reason for that is because Thatcher and Reagan in the seventies and eighties were going through the systematic deregulation and um, sort of uh, disentangling government from all of these different areas that up until that point in time, we had relied on government for, right? Um, the, the 40s, 50s, 60s were a time when the government was, you know, making jobs for people. It was making sure that, you know, education was was being done in a certain way. There was that, you know, factories were starting, you know, they were starting to um, clean up factory runoff and things like that. Um, And then the Reagan Knights and the Thatcherites came in and really started to systematically dismantle all of those expectations of government to put them in the hands of uh, private companies. And that really, I mean, that's a 50-year process. That's not very long, Right. And so, yeah, there is an alternative. We were living it before Margaret Thatcher said that. Um, And I think it's just it's it is crazy to believe that there aren't other ways to do things. We've seen that there's other ways to do things. One of the way I I love the end of the book, he actually leaves the book on this strangely hopeful note. Um, Unexpected, right? Like, where did this come from? (laughs) Yeah. But what looking at it today, you know, I I, reading that like last paragraph, it felt so prescient in that he's talking about how uh, even a small kind of hiccup in the system could have an outsized effect on how we think about what's possible. And I think, oh, God, well, that's exactly what happened with COVID, right? COVID gave us a hiccup that made people ask, why don't we take care of people? Why don't we intervene as a society on things like poverty and public health and all of these different things? And did bad stuff happen in those years too? Absolutely. Was polarization increased? Absolutely. 
But a huge segment of the American public is thinking about alternatives in a way that it was not three, four years ago. So I, I mean, I mm-hmm. it's sad. And also, it's incredible that he was so on it then. And, you know, obviously, we don't know what the future holds. But I, you know, I think I think there is reason to be hopeful, um, if not because things are great now, but because people are waking up and recognizing that change is possible and that we could do things differently. Absolutely. I would say that is really sort of this underpinning silver lining of like the great resignation, so-called, right? And people are like, oh, I actually don't have to tolerate an environment. Like personally, as a human, I don't have to tolerate a work environment that doesn't serve me on this very kind of basic human level in a way. Like, yeah, I can make money with it, but like, like I, I don't feel, I don't feel good about it, right? Like as a human, like it's not feeling sustainable. It doesn't feel healthy. You know, there's a lot of reasons people describe these things. But which basically it comes down to like, oh, the systems as they are portrayed through this organization I'm working for, this company, whatever it is, this business are really mirrored. I see this a lot like, oh, this is just how we do things. You know, the sort of acceptance of culture, which is not the same as plausible deniability of perpetuating the culture, right? Like we are just yep. accepting that this is how things are done. And suddenly, oh, wait, no one wants to work for me. I, oh, I need to increase wages. But like, wait, still no one is working here? Like, still I'm understaffed? I can't, how much do I have to pay people? I'm going to run out of business, you know, like, whatever. Like, I've seen this happen to um, a lot of smaller businesses because they're a little more transparent, right? Like, if you have a big multinational, you know, the McDonald's down a couple blocks from me was like, oh, like, you'd see the, um, now hiring at this much, this much, this much. You you see this little number go up on their billboard. Now they're not saying they're hiring, but the Wendy's a couple blocks further is like, hey, start your career at Wendy's. I'm like, Eh, okay, like, uh, tell like what's like offer me a number on your billboard, out, you know, your sign out front. Tell me how much you're paying me per hour. Like that's still everywhere, right? Like the hourly yeah. rates. I don't know if you see it around. Like work for this place. Here's hiring bonus, starting rates. That number is much more present in a way that I don't think was before the pandemic, which is an interesting twist on oh, like transparency, right? I think people mm-hmm. there's like everything's hidden underneath, but then there's transparency, and it is like. Your hourly rate for a starting wage is suddenly much more transparent in the world, which helps people shop around and buy. But that doesn't mean, oh, like, oh, this one pays more than that one. Is that still worth it to me? Like, I still don't know, right, if that's going to be serving me or a good place to be or work or spend my time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The the calculus on what kind of job is a good job to have or what kind of job I will accept has completely changed in the last three years. And we see pushback from the capitalist realist uh, status quo, right? That there's a quote unquote labor shortage. There's not a labor shortage. There is a shortage of jobs that pay enough for a human being to survive in this world. That's what there's a shortage of. And, you know, it's really easy to get sucked back into that labor shortage, labor shortage story. Um, And that's like, that's the realism piece. It's like, oh, right. People don't want to work anymore. People are lazy. Other people, you know, other people are the problem. But what if it's not? What if, you know, what if? People can't afford to take a job that doesn't pay their bills, right? Mm -hmm. And why is that a worker's problem and not a business's 
problem. And Fisher talks a lot about that too, the way that individuals are pathologized as like not fitting into the system, not doing what they're supposed to be doing, whereas the system is very rarely critiqued, at least, you know, out in mainstream media, um, in terms of like how it has created the situation that we have um, and that people are merely you know, trying to deal with it. So I'm I'm so glad you brought up the the great resignation and the labor shortage bit because it, it's again it's just a perfect encapsulation encapsulation of what happens when we don't make the systems visible. Absolutely, and I think it's uh, I saw this great I'm sure post on social media somewhere that was no one wants to work today. Everyone's lazy. Everyone's a bum. And it was like a newspaper article from like 1930. Like none of oh, this yeah. is also new or like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is crazy labor shortage. Like we're not going to, we're going to have to shut down. The economy is going to grind to a halt. It's like from 1965, you know, like whatever, yep. like the, these are not new sentiments, right? This is, but also what you were saying about Margaret Thatcher, like they, uh, Fisher says, basically, I'm like, I lived through the eighties and nineties also. And that, uh, socialist realism was a viable possibility until the mid eighties. Then we're just like, mm -hmm. okay, this is actually not a viable alternative anymore. We're just, we're going all capitalism all day. Everyone else is kicked to the curb. It's like a thought exercise. Like what else would you do besides capitalism? Like, cool. Enjoy your thought experiment. And we're going to carry on over here with capitalism and the labor shortage and the, you know, the systems of capitalism put into a corporate environment where people are the cogs. You know, I was talking to someone recently who was like, yeah, I want to do this thing, but I think I, I don't know if I want to be a cog in that wheel. I'm like, that is what you would be, you know, at that place doing that, you know, whatever we can, we can say that, but the reality is that's changing maybe our decisions on a personal level. But the bigger reality is that wheel still needs some cogs. Someone's going to fill them, you know, like it's going to happen. It's going to change. It's going to like make it sign, say you're paid a dollar more an hour or whatever it is to sort of entice people in. Like I haven't seen any of those McDonald's or Wendy's shut down. Like they're still, they somehow still seem to be working like, okay. And those are obviously big, you know, corporate mm -hmm. multinationals, but there are, I think even on the smaller personal level, I think that's where you see change happening. The smaller businesses have closed down. And that's like the pandemic. Like there's complicated pieces of pandemic, right? That, that affect whether a small business can keep running or not. Like their overhead is much lower. Everything is just smaller. I went to another a smaller shop in, nearby where I live. And, you know, you walk in and suddenly it's like the owner working the shop, right? When you're like, mm -hmm. oh, you used to have two shops. So I assume you had more staff before, but now you have one shop. And the owner is running it like, oh, I see that this has affected, you know, their economics have affected you and how you operate things. And this is a great shop and I'd buy everything you had, but I'm not going to because I'm going to be a conscious consumer and not just buy, you know, like crazy. But we see we see changes happening on these small scales it, it, in big scale. It looks like, you know, the billboard going up and down, you know, like uh, trying to entice people in. But small scales, we do see change happening around who is working in in the shop you know the small business owner shop who is going to work for them who is going to be engaged in that process and i think that has to come around to anti-capitalist leadership which is one of my areas of like interest is how to coach and prepare leaders to not operate in this capitalist mindset of making <sighs> employees into cogs and wheels right like that separating that out can be done at this sort of small business leadership level too Yes. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that that's something that you're working on. It is absolutely something that I'm working on too. How do we 
excavate these systems from the ways we manage people, the ways we, you know, work together, the ways we, yeah, just so excited to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think the small business example is something that's, that's really interesting here because as part of our American myth, we have such a, we, we give small businesses such a sacred position in our economy when, unfortunately, there's a huge segment of small business that is some of the most exploitative uh, enterprises, ventures that are out there because, you know, they've they've been able to sort of squeeze in between the cracks and take up surplus labor and, um, you know, and, and pay these ridiculously low wages. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's there's other reasons that businesses are struggling now than just, oh, we used to be able to exploit our workers and now we can't. But there is a huge segment of small business that used to be able to exploit their workers and now they can't. And that's something for us to really examine. Um, Fisher talks about this too, where uh, we are more likely to identify as capitalists than we are as workers. And small business owners find themselves in this, this middle where um, instead of being able to say, you know, to kind of put themselves in the perspective of someone that they're employing for, you know, seven fifty an hour, ten fifty an hour, um, they're constantly thinking from that capitalist perspective, and and I don't mean that, I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean that that's that's how we're trained to think. Like I've got to think about the business, the business, the business, the profit line, the the P and L, whatever it might be, instead of thinking about the people and and what we're doing together as a business. Um, and that's that's something you know. In in my work, it's something that I try to really um, kind of tease out for people. Is that you know as as small business owners, as freelancers, as independent workers, gig workers, we're workers first. We, you know, and are there, are there components of being a capitalist that we also take on just by virtue of existing in the system? Absolutely. But if we can position ourselves in our own minds as workers first and find solidarity with the people that work with us, then that can be a really radical place um, to create change on a business level, which is, you know, that has ripple effects out into the rest of the economy. Absolutely. Uh, some of the work I do is with businesses changing their internal policies, right? Mm -hmm. And so many businesses have policies. And specifically for me, it's around uh, discipline and policies. It's something I've been working on lately. A lot of mm. businesses have this classic discipline policy like really reminiscent of Foucault again, like this guy who's out there telling us like we need to discipline people by punishment, right? And intellectually, and the reality is he was reflecting this world where you need to sit in a certain way and be disciplined and mm -hmm. show and maintain internal discipline or you will be punished. And punishment is this motivator, but also this like hanging over your head all the time, right? As this yep. way. And so, so many businesses have this sort of classic um, 
it's called progressive discipline, which is very ironic, but it's, you get your verbal warning, then you get your written warning, then you get fired, you know, and sometimes there's some coaching in there. Sometimes there's some, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But that's the policy of, of discipline, like the within an organization in many places versus mm-hmm. I think other places it's just like, well, you just you get fired and we try to work around not getting sued for, you know, discrimination or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And so if you pull apart this system and how you're trying to maintain discipline within your organization, this is a huge place where owners manage, especially small business owners, right? Or smaller nonprofits where the board is super connected or just these have a huge opportunity to make really radical change in terms of, wait, I need to actually treat a person like a person and not just walk through these steps so I can fire them. I'm like, or you need to fire them right now because you don't trust them, right? Because they're not because they're not being a good enough cog and a good enough wheel. Like trust is actually more important to how you operate in a business and how a business feels and how your energy is used, right? Like I've talked to so mm-hmm. many business owners, they're like, oh, I'm struggling with this employee because they do this and not that and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, at the end of the day, it's you don't trust them to do the right thing. So either we can work on repairing trust, which is a very different discipline policy than written warning, verbal warning, fired, or we can like fire them now and like start over and hire with trust in mind versus hiring with resume productivity, right? Because we hire for productivity. Mm -hmm. We hire for sometimes we're like, oh, we're not hiring for productivity now. We're hiring for runway or like we think that they'll be able to get here with our, you know, amazing mentorship or whatever along the way, which is still productivity in mind. Like, oh, we think the return on investment of hiring this human will pay off for the business down the road. Great. Instead of that, we could look at, I need to have people I trust that will do, that will communicate and trust, you know, these pieces that are really amorphous and really difficult to pull out of, I think, a resume fundamentally. You know, someone can say, (laughs) I studied communications. You're like, "Uh, cool. I don't know. You know, but the reality is, at a human level, your policies are sort of this backbone within many organizations. And they are just assumed like, oh, this is just how you do it. This is how you do conflict within a business. This is how you do these things without examining them and creating those sort of little pockets of revolution fundamentally, which is possible. Totally. Yes. I I love that you're working on disciplinary policy. Yeah. I mean, I think that... Um, I talk a lot about how goals create culture and it happens through the way values get operationalized. And so if the company's values are stated one thing and operationalized a different way through policy, whether it's disciplinary or whatever, then yeah, you're going to have a a culture that breeds distrust, that reinforces hierarchy, all of these different things. And you've got to be able to create the operations in a business that um, kind of build that radical foundation from the bottom up. Um, The other thing that I was thinking about uh, when you were talking about sort of resumes is that a lot of hiring, I think, happens... um, Yes, from productivity, but also from a perspective of conformity. Who can we hire that will do things the way we want them to be done? And then businesses get or you know, managers get frustrated when people aren't thinking out of the box. They're not taking initiative. They're not doing this, that, or the other thing. It's like, well, you hired someone who you know made themselves into a cog for your machine. Of course, they're not going to take initiative. Of course, they're not going to be creative. You've tried to create stability in your organization at the the risk, at the cost of innovation and creativity. It's like you can't have both. It's just not going to happen. Absolutely. It makes me think of the 
this very dicey term cultural fit, right? When we're trying oh, to find yeah. people to fit within an organization and organizational identity, which I love. I also do work on or, like your um, stated values and your actual values. And like, that's like, it sounds like a gap. I know that you work within too. Like, oh, here's yeah. what we say we do. It's like the posters, the, the, you know, list of mission and vision and values on the website. But then you go and talk to the people like, cool. Well, how do you operate here? What is it? What actually guides your decisions? I talk a lot about like your decision making on a day to day basis, which forms your habits. Your habits are that fossil record of your values in action. So if we look at your decision making, we're sort of at this middle point. But if we look at the habits of how you operate in this business, that is your business's values, also culture. And so if we're looking at cultural fit, we want people to like slide into this space. Yeah, we're hiring for someone we think is going to do what we want to do without a lot of effort, right? On our part. Exactly. And so like, ooh, <laughs> then they do what we want to do without, yeah, I, that's exactly right. Sacrificing initiative, creativity, these different things. Or then they do take initiative and you're like, whoa, I didn't say you could do that. Oh my God. Like, why are you off the you know rails over here? What's going on? You know, it's, uh, I mean, there is there's so much more room for nuance in there. And again, the classic I think American system is like, it's all a dichotomy. They're right or they're wrong. They're fitting right. in or they're not. You know, there's obviously this gray zone, but that's, I think, the gray zone of like learning and growing as an anti-capitalist leader and as a creating a workplace that is something that actually works for the people and is supportive and meaningful, I think, in a different way. Yeah. And to kind of bring things back to like the individual level too, because um, all of this kind of organizational change, societal change starts with the individual. Um, I think the the difference between stated values and and sort of lived values or the values that are actually being applied happens on an individual level too. And it's one of the reasons I focus so much on making systems visible because you can say, well, I value equality in my community. I value justice. But if you if you keep operating within the systems that we have without intentionality, without, uh, you know, recognizing how those systems are working against justice, working against equality, well, then are those really your values? And, you know, uh, kind of to the, the psychopolitics idea, like, that's the thing that we need to notice and defamiliarize, and uh, Han talks about depsychologized, which I, I don't think that's probably a great word to use. But like, there's a mindset shift, right? Like, we have to recognize that doing things the way that we've thought we're supposed to do them is probably not aligned with the values that we have. And it doesn't mean that we can be, you know, a hundred percent perfect anti-capitalist. There's no such thing, um, but it does mean, I think, that we can make more intentional, make more recognizable the ways in which our actual values tie to our actual actions. The, the actual values that we are actually living yes. in the moment, not those aspirational values, which in my world is always us, integrity, <clears throat> and then one mm -hmm. thing based on a weird experience you had as a young person, right? Those are your values. We know that. Every organization has that. Like, that's what their poster is going to say. That's what their website's going to say. Honesty, integrity, and working out of your garage, you know, at all hours. Honesty, integrity, and, you know, supporting people who slip and fall in the mud because that happened to me once, you know, whatever it is. But I think you also bring up this interesting point around what is uh, expected, but also, like, creating alternatives. I think there is... Um, 
Yeah. Well, I'm just going to read this little part about the book about yeah. how alternative and independent don't designate something out of the mainstream culture. Rather, they are, in fact, the dominant styles within the mainstream. And then he goes on to talk about Kurt Cobain for a while, who's like, Ugh, like, I am a cliche and I know it and this is terrible, you know, whatever. But that we we say like, oh, here's an alternative system. But like, like within music and, and pop culture, this is much more obvious, right? Like, oh, it's alternative mm-hmm. music. But like, alternative is a genre of music right and we're like the record store yeah i'm like i go to the alternative (laughs) section so what are we talking about you know it becomes like uh, this beautiful window dressing label for uh being independent and like the classic you know think different like apple slogan like Mm -hmm. within this system think different means buy my thing right (laughs) like okay I guess this is different than the other alternative alternative again, you know, as a concept, but the reality is it's just sort of a ploy to pull you back into mm-hmm. the dominant way of being the dominant way of thinking, which is capitalist realism. Yeah. You know, I think that um, folks, when they think about there being an actual alternative or like the opposite of there is no alternative, they're looking for a thing, right? They're looking for a system that's already been proven, a system that already works. What is the the framework that we're going to use to rebuild society? And I, I think David Graeber talks about this quite a bit. There is no alternative in that we don't know what it looks like yet. We have lots of great theory for thinking about it, for dismantling what we have and and creating constraints on what could be. But just because we don't know what the alternative is doesn't mean that there isn't one, and it doesn't mean that we can't work together to find it. But the actual alternative is not going to be a genre of music or a type of clothing or a section that you can shop on Amazon, right? If it's if it is a commercial product that you can buy, um, and even I mean that even metaphorically, it's not actually alternative. I love that line. I use it quite often. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think the the thing about what is truly alternative is that it is not something that we can recognize. But working toward it doesn't require that we can recognize it yet. Right. I think it speaks back to, I think in the dawn of everything, Graeber talks about there were other systems. There are other systems out there. And that book is a little bit of a historical survey Mm -hmm. of other systems, other ways of operating, other political formations, other reasons why things were formed the way they were in different cultures, really around the globe in different ways. And it's beautiful and amazing to be like, oh yeah, there are other ideas out there. And we might actually have to revert to how we feel about things. Like, as a way of guiding ourselves versus how we think about things. I think there's this, mm-hmm. we like to intellectualize and be like, oh, well, here's like the my cost benefit analysis, which is capitalism. And I'm going to find a better system than capitalism using the system of capitalism. Like, yes, uh, you, uh, like does not compute a little bit because we need to separate from that system of even, you know, the the basic ways we think we are making decisions. And I love Annie Duke's work on decision making. And it is very mm-hmm. much about actually, you know, this cost benefit analysis isn't right. Like there are other factors involved and some of them are forecasting and thinking how it will feel in the future. And some of them are looking to the past a little bit, but if we look too much to the past, we're just going to recreate the past, right? Like we are, we are going to re-envision these cycles again with like, oh, but I did it slightly differently. I did it the alternative way, which is that section in the music store that is already labeled for me. That's handy. You know, uh, so we have to 
dismantle things like maybe a piece at a time and i think it's scary to people right to be like i'm gonna do my business is gonna be a cooperative i don't know what that means but it's not gonna we're not gonna have hierarchies here i'm like really you're not gonna have hierarchies here you're gonna be cooperative tell me more about what that looks like tell me more about you know how that is in reality and how you're gonna train all of your your people that are with you to engage at that level and there are obviously cooperatives out there there are alternative business Mm -hmm. structures out there like that is a literal real thing that happens and people still have to sort of get their brain around I'm just a piece of this. Like, wait, I'm not, who's the boss here? You know, like there are divisions and structures that, like in place, like stuff does get done. Like if it was just a free for all, you it wouldn't work even within this like constrained version in a capitalist world, right? So, but you still have to train people into that. I think in some ways, or that's who you attract in. I mean, both, right? You attract in people yeah. who are interested in the non-dominant <laughs> capitalist view of operation, non-hierarchical view, I think is an easy one to like label to put on there. And yet you still have to train people and yourself. Like he really goes, spends a lot of time talking about how, yeah, we think putting new people in banking regulation roles will make banking better. But reality is the system of banking is the problem. Like that's like the system of regulation itself is the problem, not putting in the right people all the time, which we can say about a lot of systems out there in our world, right? Especially around punishment, crime, like those systems, like we just put the right people in there, it's going to be fine. Also, the system is doing what it's designed to do. Capitalism is doing what it's designed to do. And to find those points of, you know, truly alternative, truly radical, truly, like, meaningful protest might be very personal. But depending on how much power or influence you have on the people around you, there is still room to influence the people around you in very positive ways. I think that when we're talking about, like, alternatives or, like, reimagining things, it starts with questions, right? It doesn't start with answers. Um, so like the, the should this be a owner, uh, uh, you know, an owned business with a hierarchy or should this be a cooperative? It's like, well, what could it look like to have a business that operates on consensus instead of hierarchy? What could it look like if the owner shared profits equally among employees? What what other questions would we need to ask? What other um, what other areas would we need to rethink? It's the same thing on a societal level too. It's just starting to ask questions. Why is there poverty? Why is such a big segment of our population living below the poverty level? And also, why is the poverty line as low as it is in the first place? Why is that? And not being, uh, we can't be pacified by the answers to those questions that have been supplied by the existing system. We have to look at the ways in which those, those questions are acknowledged as real and valid and the ways like i said earlier researchers are are looking at how things can be eliminated why is it that our minimum wage is so far below a living wage why is it that we're willing to roll back child labor laws in the year of our lord 2023 um you know all but just asking those questions recognizing the absurdity and recognizing that it doesn't have to be that way we can make different choices um, is so it's so key. And yeah, it happens on an individual level. It happens on a business level. It happens on a community level and it happens on a society level too. Beautiful. This has been so fun talking with you. We've talked a long time. I suppose I should need to wrap this thing up finally, but, uh, it's been, thank you so much, Tara, for coming in. And I love that note to end on like really questions are 
what the best we can do in so many ways asking wondering what if why like the question why is this tricky question right the how mm -hmm. we got to be here is like easy to answer but the mm -hmm. why why it has to be that way is much more difficult why does it where did this come from why is this why is poverty a thing why is crime a thing why why you know like the sort of those bigger deeper questions are worth thinking about and the i think those lead to really meaningful useful ideas inspired perhaps by capitalist realism or by your own ideas of what is what else is out there what else is possible how, how do i want this to feel i think to me like draws back into the most anti-capitalist thing you can really do is feel about something and have feelings direct some of your choices and decision making not just i feel like i should buy this but like how do i feel <laughs> in this system how do i feel about how things are working here anyway this yeah. has been an awesome conversation any last thoughts you want to end on i feel like all the questions are beautiful <laughs> way to wrap this thing up <laughs> yeah i think i think that's a good place to leave it if i started talking more i'd go for another you know hour or so <laughs> Let's too, leave it there. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thanks so much, Tara, for talking with me today about capitalist realism. And it's been awesome chatting with you. Thank you. This is so much fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Book Supplied podcast. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a new book and learning how to apply its ideas to make your work, sport, or life a little bit more awesome. For more leadership education-related content, including conflict management checklists, invitations to a fun-free lunch that happens monthly, upcoming classes, webinars, and mastermind groups, please head over to wslleadership.com. Thanks, and have a great day.